It's October 24th, 2018. This is Acacia Thompson for Brooklyn Public Library's Greenpoint Oral History Project for Our Streets, Our Stories. I'm here today at Queens Library Broadway Branch with Mitch Waxman, historian at the Newtown Creek. Hi, Mitch. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. So perhaps you could just let us talk about first what, what is the location of the Newtown Creek and... Uh, Newtown Creek is a tributary of the East River. It sits between Brooklyn and Queens. The joke is always that it provides the uh, currently undefended border of Brooklyn and Queens. Um, it's 3.8 miles long. It has multiple tributaries, and at, it is pretty much what the Greeks would have called the omphalos, or the navel of old industrial New York. Um, at its height, the Newtown Creek was one of the economic engines that was driving the economy of New York City. Uh, it's the birthplace of mobile oil. Uh, there were also uh, Brooklyn Union Gas had an enormous plant there. It was a massive employer. Um, at one point around the time of the First World War, the Newtown Creek carried more industrial cargo than the entire Mississippi River. And it was the reason that people began leaving the crowded tenements of industrial Manhattan. Um, they could move to Brooklyn and Queens and find better work and better housing and better schools uh, than they could find on the east, on the Lower East Side in particular in Manhattan. And the ethnic communities of the Lower East Side, one by one, uh, starting in the 1860s, began to leave the Lower East Side. First the Catholic Germans, followed by the Polish, followed by the Ukrainians, followed by the Jews, followed by the Italians, followed by, and, and right through to the late 20th century when the creative class of the Lower East Side, the artists, the musicians, and so on, began following this centuries-old pattern. Um, they all have been attracted to these wide open vistas around the Newtown Creek and the possibilities that this industrial neighborhood or in modernity, this post-industrial neighborhood offers them. Right. And um, <coughs> talk about some of, you've spoken about, about oil and the refineries. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the other types of industries in the 19th century? Well, some of them were ghastly. Um, you have... Um, our great-grandparents knew more about recycling than the modern world ever will. And as Philip Armour of Chicago once said, we use every part of the pig but the squeal um, at his uh, meat processing plant. Um, in New York City, which was a horse-drawn and ox-cart-drawn economy, uh, right up until uh, really the 1920s, um, you had this tremendous amount of organic material, uh, your horse poop, um, animal waste, and so on. And there, on the Queen side in particular, there were a lot of facilities that processed these organics. There was Van Eidersteins, who were fat renderers. Um, there were the, uh, there were, uh, Fleischmann's yeast was based in Queens for a long time. Um, you had industries that were built around the horse and carriage industry, and they would take, there was one company, uh, the Habermans, which would take um, ho uh, the hooves of goats and sheep that were in the, uh, th their meat was going toward the butcher shops and going to feed people, but the bones, the horns, the, uh, the hooves would be brought out to Newtown Creek and they would be rendered down 
into a substance that was called meat oil, M-E-E-T. And it's something, those of us who live in the age of the motor vehicle, we have no idea what this stuff is, but it's essentially an, uh, an oil that you would use to um, lubricate the hooves of uh, draft horses and so on. And it's, there was a whole industry built around horse and carriages that we just have no conventional um, knowledge of in the modern day because we live in the age of the automobile. Um, there was a very early chemical factory called Phelps Dodge, uh, I'm sorry, originally called General Chemical, which was in the early 20th century acquired by a company called Phelps Dodge and turned into a copper refinery. Um, they were a huge, huge business. Um, the, uh, a little bit further back, you uh, had some more of the organics guys. You had early chemical factories and whale oil refineries. But the big event on Newtown Creek started in 1854 when a fellow named Abraham Gesner opened a company uh, on the Queens side where, which Gesner was a chemist who had figured out a way to free uh, an oil from coal using high pressure steam. This oil was uh, clear, it was stable at room temperature, it burned hot and fast, and it gave a really bright light when it burned. Um, he gave the brand name to this chemical, kerosene. And that was the first large scale petroleum refinery on Newtown Creek. Shortly after the Civil War, there were as many as 50 independent family-owned refineries on Newtown Creek. And it was just local business people who started these petroleum refineries. And the, petrol the raw product would come in from Pennsylvania and other places by rail or by boat. Um, by 1890, every petroleum facility on Newtown Creek was owned by one entity. And that was John D. Rockefeller Standard Oil. And the Standard Oil Company of New York um, dominated the Brooklyn side, much of the Brooklyn side. Further back um, on the former works of Peter Cooper of B&O Railroad and Cooper um, Union, Peter Cooper, um, famed abolitionist Peter Cooper, um, on the former works of his glue factory, uh, the Brooklyn Union Gas Company founded an enormous manufactured gas plant after their digs over on the Gowanus had become too cramped. And they based themselves in kind of the eastern side of Greenpoint, right at the, uh, right near the border of Bushwick. Um, and it's like, it, it's, a, it's a funny thing because when we talk about the, particularly on the Brooklyn side, the lines are very hazy as to where the neighborhoods are. Part of this is the influence of the real estate industry. Part of this is mid 20th century politics. Um, but Greenpoint, according to the old maps, um, ended at Meeker Avenue, and that everything east of there was Bushwick. Um, modernity calls it that area, uh, calls it Greenpoint basically all the way back to uh, Metropolitan Avenue in the, in the modern day, or at least Maspeth Avenue. And um, Bushwick is now known as East Williamsburg. You know, but if the real estate guys have their way, uh, Williamsburg will eventually extend into Nassau County. <laughs> <coughs> well, talk to me a little bit about some of the legacies that have been left because of those very specific industries. The, before the Clean Water and Clean Air Act, 
uh, occurred during the 1970s, there really were no environmental regulations um, in the United States of America. And industry existed in the laissez-faire capitalism phase that we're all familiar with from the stories of the robber barons. Um, there was no reason not to dump waste materials into the water. There was no reason not to dig a hole and bury your waste materials. It was your property, your site. Excuse me. Um, it was your property, your site. You could do whatever you want with it. And in Tammany's New York, if a regulator did show up, it was fairly easy to get them to pay attention to somebody else. So the organics people left behind a lot of yuck. Uh, there was, it, it, frankly, the air pollution was what everyone complained about historically um, due to the organics people that were mainly on the Queens side of the creek. Uh, the copper refinery, Phelps Dodge, left behind all sorts of chemical leave-behinds, uh, polychlorinated biphenols, I want to say. I think that's what it was. Um, PCBs and so on. Uh, they also left behind uh, organic copper compounds, which are in the sediment beds um, in the water adjoining their old property. The manufactured gas product uh, pro um, production involved the, you would burn fuel of various types in a low oxygen environment uh, in a furnace called a retort. The retort caused the fuel to smolder. They would then waft the gases coming off of the smoldering fuel, put them through a series of condensers, they would separate out the compounds they didn't want, and they would then keep the compounds they did want. Uh, there were about 300 useful chemicals that came out of the manufactured gas product, um, including the red dye in the American flag, including the blue dye that the Union soldiers wore during the uh, Civil War. Um, Unfortunately, what they, their main waste product was something called coal tar. And coal tar, there's two types. There's one type that is a, an after product that's used by the pharmaceutical industry, but that's the smallest percentage of the coal tar. The vast majority of it is carcinogenic black goo that essentially they kept in open soil lined pits and if they had too much of it, they would just open up the pits and let the coal tar seep into the creek. Um, the oil people, um, Newtown Creek is one of the places where the American oil industry figured itself out. And at the beginning, they, the tanks weren't welded, they were riveted, so they leaked. Uh, they weren't even proper tanks by modern standards. There were no bottoms on the tanks. The tanks were just sitting on asphalt pads. So if, and if they made, if they lost 5% of the daily product, who cared? They were making so much money uh, that it's, that they just wrote that off as, as loss. Um, the oil industry also experienced several cataclysmic total loss fires, which I have no idea how memory of this doesn't persist in Greenpoint. 1882 and 1919 in particular, um, there were, 
cataclysmic fires, which saw the entire Standard Oil operation on Newtown Creek burn to, the, to a cinder. Um, in one of them, they lost 110 million gallons of petroleum product in, in, in a single three-day period. The Greenpoint Avenue Bridge burned down. Two fireboats from Manhattan came out to fight the blaze. They burned down. Uh, they finally had to uh, throw sticks of dynamite at the fires to put them out. Um, but the resources and the funding of the Standard Oil Company at the time were such that they had the whole operation up and running in 90 days. So much you money. Know, where they just rebuilt the entire thing in 90, in 90 days. A lot of the stuff that's in the ground on the Brooklyn side comes from these early, uh, the, the oil product, I should say, instead of the stuff, um, comes from these total loss fires, comes from sloppy early practices, and comes from essentially 100 years of minor spills, sloppy work practices, and industrial accidents. Um, according to uh, Attorney General Cuomo, and what he was able to prove uh, in his lawsuit against ExxonMobil, which is the inheritor of the Standard Oil Empire. Um, they, everyone agreed it was 17 to 30 million gallons in the ground. Um, odds are there's quite a bit more down there, but what was legally provable was 17 to 30 million. Um, ExxonMobil has recently admitted culpability for a another spill that's on the Queen side, directly across the creek from the uh, from the heart of the Greenpoint oil spill. Uh, this is why those of us involved with the environmental movement on Newtown Creek refer to it as the Greenpoint oil spill and not the Newtown Creek oil spill, because Newtown Creek oil spill would indicate that there's just one particular event. Uh, the political reality of that the oil spill in Queens, which is a thousand feet away from the oil spill in Brooklyn, is that that's a separate event. That it's not actually connected through the water table or in any subterranean way to the Brooklyn event, but th these are the legal realities of the way that uh, environmental law works. So this is where when the EPA declared Newtown Creek a, super, a federal Superfund site, this gave everyone a lot of hope because said we can suddenly look at things in terms of a region rather than in terms of individual lots or city council districts or assembly districts or even the ridiculous Brooklyn Queens border that we have to constantly obey. Because the thing is, you'll encounter this constantly where Brooklyn has a problem, they push it over to Queens. You know, and the Brooklyn politicians are very proud of themselves, and then the Queens politicians, they begin to rise, and then they push the problem back to Brooklyn. And one of the things that we're constantly doing at Newtown Creek Alliance and those of us in the activist community are constantly doing is trying to bring the two sides of the creek together and to try and get the people from Maspeth and the people from East Williamsburg and the people from Long Island City and the people from Greenpoint into the same room so they can start comparing notes. And when they start comparing notes, they discover that it's one community and a creek runs through it. Right. Now tell me a little bit about Newtown Creek Alliance. Newtown Creek Alliance is uh, lucky enough to be the inheritor 
of an environmental tradition that started really in the 1950s with the concerned mothers of Greenpoint. And a lot of our DNA starts with Irene Klementevich and Mary Pencala and the concerned mothers who began to bind together to get uh, to oppose the trash incinerator that was on North Henry Street and to begin to talk about the environmental issues. Um, at the time, mobile oil was still refining gas on Newtown Creek. That ended in 1966. In modernity, the name of the game for oil on Newtown Creek is distribution, not manufacture. Um, beginning in the 1990s, uh, David Yasky's office began to organize um, meetings of concerned citizens. And many of the current Newtown Creek Alliance board members, the original group, Laura Hoffman, Bill Shuck, and so on, began to come together. And under Yasky's suggestion, the idea was to start bringing together a coalition or an alliance of concerned groups and concerned citizens. Riverkeeper began to get involved. Um, there's, um, as you know, Greenpoint is a hotbed of activism, if you throw a gum wrapper on the, on the sidewalk, um, a group will have formed with a great acronym name, like within seconds. Um, and, but it was really, um, the, the coalescing really started about 2006, 2008. And I got involved with Newtown Creek Alliance around, uh, I guess, 2009, 2010. And um, I found this little group that had a great name, and but no no offices, no place to meet. We were borrowing office space from, you know, it's like we could meet in this um, social club or we could meet in somebody's office. Um, and it was originally run by a woman named uh, Katie Schmidt, um, who really set the standard for professionalism and for taking a scientific and data-based approach to this story. That it wasn't about, you know, hey, hey, no, no, you gotta go kind of stuff. That it was, we were, it, that, that was the thing that impressed me um, about, and about the NCA people when I first met them. That they weren't radicals. That th these were concerned people from the neighborhood who then educated themselves on this incredibly esoteric subject and then began sacrificing their personal time. And you would start, and I started doing the same, and I got smart about Newtown Creek. Um, Katie Schmidt um, moved on. She, want, she started a family, and she could no longer uh, act as the uh, coordinator, I think she called herself at the time, um, of Newtown Creek Alliance. And that's when the first executive director came on. That was a woman named Kate Zidar. Uh, who was a Pratt urban planning professor and, uh, well, still is really, but um, uh, Pratt, a Pratt urban planning professor and she formerly worked with SWIM Coalition. Um, Kate brought a lot of information with her about green infrastructure and she really opened our minds to a lot of ideas as to how to fix Newtown Creek. It was under Kate that we came up with the branding of NCA, the Newtown Creek Alliance logo. The, that's when we all started wearing these blue hats with the yellow logos. And that's when the motto of reveal, restore, revitalize, which has become our mission, 
became encoded in us and we started looking at things through the through that three-part filter is this reveal is this restore or is this revitalize and that's something that's been become a guiding principle as Newtown Creek Alliance became an official 5013C nonprofit, uh, Kate also moved on, and then uh, Will Elkins, who's our current executive director, stepped into the gap. And Will has been doing an absolutely amazing job. I have no idea where he gets his energy. Um, I worry about him actually. He works so hard. Um, but Will is um, Will does all three parts of the mission. I'm lucky. I just work on reveal. Um, that means I don't have to do much shoveling, but Will is out there in a boat in the mornings doing water testing. Uh, Will is out there in the afternoon with a shovel digging illegal dumping out of street ends, and at night he's going to the meetings. You know, and I have to say, if you ever want to see the real thing, you look at Will as Elkins. Right. And so what are the biggest issues currently for the creek, do you think? Um, I tend not to want to have a conversation about the uh, Trump administration and their retrograde policies and so on. Um, there's a variety of reasons for this, but I think honestly that we're in a temporary moment here as far as federal policy. And um, I um, do not want to uh, incur the wrath of Washington toward Brooklyn and Queens. Um, the um, Newtown Creek Superfund site is, uh, by EPA's description, a PRP, or potentially, potentially responsible party-funded Superfund site, meaning that no matter how much they cut the EPA budget, the Superfund process is going to continue. And there's legal commitments from all parties to see this thing through to the end. Um, Saying that, clean water laws are being uh, abraded, and there's all sorts of uh, all, all sorts of issues involving critters that live in the water column that are no longer being addressed. And we're just going to have to see the way that the way this the next few years play out. Right. Well, what about locally? Life is being brought back into the creek a little bit. Um, there's, uh, what, what do you see now? Like, what kind of projects are going on in the creek to observe <laughs> the life that has come back? Well, you see, right now, and, and this is one of these interesting conversations, there's a lot of what are called invasive species, right? Now, I am of the opinion, and I, you know, I, I joke about this all the time, I will take biomass, and when we have achieved 100% biomass, then we can start picking and choosing which biomass is good. Um, people who are hardcore environmentalists uh, will tell me that that's stupid. And that um, the Audubon people will tell you to get rid of all the cats. The cat shelter people will tell you to get rid of all the birds. Everybody's got their drum that they beat. Nature, however, has its own drum. And the way I see it, if sawgrass died out because of the pollution in the water and Phragmites are thriving and providing habitat for critters. I'm not quite sure 
You know, it, it would be a lot like dating your high school sweetheart again. You know what I mean? The problems that made you break up in the first place are still there, but you somehow are holding on to this romantic vision of the past that isn't really applicable to your modern circumstance. So the way I see it is if something can survive in this sometimes really harsh environment, um, shouldn't we be doing everything we can to encourage, you know? Um, I love the projects that Dr. Durand from LaGuardia has been doing, uh, hanging the boxes in the intertidal zone. Uh, Willis's project with the floating docks uh, are a great bit of lateral thinking and uh, really, really show a future that harkens back to an old Native American technology that the uh, Aztecs actually used called chinampas, um, which were floating islands of plants. You know, and it's, uh, the reason I love this is there's a New York State law that if you want to build anything over the water that's going to permanently shadow the water, you, like a dock, um, you end up in regulatory hell and you're going to be sending paperwork to Albany for 10 years before they finally say no. You know, uh, this is, uh, there's many municipal projects, particularly in the Hudson, that have been demolished by this, which have been good or bad things. Um, a floating structure, however, is considered temporary. So you can tie that up to the bulkhead. So I have a fantasy of somewhere 50 years from now that we've got people in canoes moving floating islands of vegetation and shellfish around that when a tugboat is bringing a fuel barge into Greenpoint, um, that the tug is gonna have to wait there for a half an hour while one of these guys in the canoes moves the green infrastructure at the shoreline out of the way. Uh, that that's, um, and, and that these are gonna be the evolution of Willis's floating docks. You know, and again, using the, the word chinampa, mm -hmm. you know, this ancient technology. Um, I think that's kind of a really interesting image, yeah. you know? Um, I'm 51 years old, I'm not going to see it, you know, but it's, uh, I think it's a really interesting picture for the future. Well, so how has the creek changed since you became an advocate and just a in the fan last, of it? Just in the last 10 years, the, right. uh, without the active industrial pollution, active ongoing industrial pollution, uh, things are improving every single day. Water quality is getting better and so on and so on. The new sewer plant in Greenpoint has had a real effect. And uh, the DEP hates when you call it a sewer plant, by the way. It's a wastewater treatment plant. That's what I'm officially supposed to say. Um, they really hate it when you call it a sewer plant. Um, that plant has actually done a lot. Um, saying that, there's still ongoing discharge of combined sewer outfalls. There's still a tremendous amount of salt and highway runoff, uh, particularly during the winter months when they salt the highways. Um, no highway or bridge in New York City is connected to a sewer plant. It drains directly into area waterways. So even the brand new Kosciuszko Bridge isn't connected to a sewer plant. Right. You know, so that means that the salt, the halide crystals, whatever they're experimenting with this year, 
Um, as soon as the ice starts to melt, all of that just discharges into this brackish waterway, turning it effectively into brine. Um, you could see it every time it rains. You could see the creek go through this rainbow of putrid colors. Um, the, it rains within 24 hours, sewage, untreated sewage is released into the water. The water turns a deep, deep army green. That's because of a bloom of algae. The algae starves itself of breathing gases in the water. They die. The creek, the creek turns ochre. The, as the algae sinks to the bottom, there's a bacterial bloom. The creek begins to smell of rotten eggs and the water turns black. Then, as the bacteria choke themselves to death, then too, the water goes back to normal watercolor. Um, and then it rains again. Uh, to address this, the DEP has installed aeration systems on some of the parts of the creek. But it's, I, I always analogize this to it's putting a bubble wand in your aquarium tank. And every night after you eat, you scrape your dinner plate off into the aquarium. And the fish are dying. And you go, mm, you know, it's because there's not enough oxygen in the water. So you say, all right, I'll put another bubble wand. And every night after dinner, you do, and then you get a real rainstorm and you can process that as being like Thanksgiving, you know, and that's uh, eventually you don't have anything in the tank anymore. You've just got bubble wands, you know. So the question is, can we amend our behavior municipally so we're not scraping our leave behinds into the waterway, which would negate the need for this giant and quite expensively operated bubble wand, uh, which has got a lot of its own issues, and um, it, which actually aerosol, aerosolizes uh, sewage bacteria and other yuck into the air column. And it's, you know, and it's also, the aeration system is right in the middle of the channel. So when the bubbles break on the surface, it pulls floatable material and other yucky stuff up out of the water column, brings it to the surface, and then pushes it to the shoreline. So in order to meet a requirement for oxygen levels in the water, they're running electric pumps, which are pushing pollutants into the exactly where human contact is most likely to occur, which is right at the water's edge. Right. Um, sorry, I wandered a little bit there, but it's you know that that's that's a big one for me. I, I just don't understand it. Are you hopeful, perhaps, in another administration that we'll have? No, this is um, this is something that um, mayors come and go. The DEP is eternal, um, and um, there are many, many. Uh, aspects of our municipal government that no politician wants to touch. Um, they don't get reelected for cutting the ribbon on a new sewer plan. Uh, they don't cut. They don't get the uh, get on the cover of the Daily News or on New York One for opening up a new morgue for the uh, city medical examiner. Uh, they like opening schools. They like uh, creating community centers and so on and so on. So. 
un until the voters begin to reward elected officials for uh, building sewer plants, um, right. you know, it's not, um, Perhaps you know, not. yeah, it's, it's out of sight, out of mind. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff you don't want that you never want to think about. You know, it's like when you wake up in the morning, you go, hey, it's sunshine. Hey, last year I had diarrhea. <laughs> you know what I mean? You put that stuff out of your mind, you know, and it's and that's the part of the problem with New York City's waste handling s system, which is you don't really know what happens uh, after, you know, you're just happy the, the, the nice fellas in the uh, big white truck came and took it. Um, I can tell you about 30% of what they take comes to Newtown Creek to one of the other side. Uh, almost all of Queens' recycling comes to Newtown Creek, um, a good portion of Brooklyn's as well. Um, and that's just the municipal stuff, you know, it's like you're not, uh, the, there's also the commercial garbage. You know, it's, um, but conversely, this and this is also where a very interesting piece of legislation who came, that came out of the surprisingly environmentally minded Bloomberg administration, uh, the 2010 Solid Waste Management Plan has actually been quite a success, um, where it's because Newtown Creek is essentially at the center of New York City, it makes sense that the waste transfer stations are there. You've also got railroad and barge infrastructure, so it makes sense that you're bringing what's essentially this cargo to a place where you can handle cargo. You know, and this is one of those things where were Newtown Creek to be returned to some pristine national park level um, stretch of land, um, all that, all of that infrastructure that allows our lives to happen so seamlessly here in New York City would have to go somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So the question is, do we want garbage trucks driving to central New Jersey? or to Nassau County or to, you know, and with all that that's gonna bring. And th this is, what, for me, one of the more interesting parts of Newtown Creek is you have to start pondering the way that the system works on this regional scale. And it's, uh, and there's so much that happens at Newtown Creek that has nothing to do with Brooklyn or Queens. Like the sewer plant, uh, wastewater treatment plant, um, that's basically if you flush a toilet in Manhattan below 79th Street, it's coming to Greenpoint, you know. Now, if you throw out commercial garbage in Manhattan, really below 34th Street, it's coming to Newtown Creek. You know, it's uh, as I said, recycling black or and uh, recycling collection, and also black bag, black bag or putrescent waste collection. Newtown Creek is central to the uh, to the system of how we handle this. But do you think? given the way that real estate has changed, and specifically Brooklyn and around Greenpoint and Williamsburg, do you think we could expect in 30 years, maybe 30 years, but rezoning, or that people would be living on the creek in the same manner that they are around Gowanus? It's possible. Um, they just put, they just erected two tower apartment buildings in Queens Plaza on the footprint of a chemical factory. Um, this is, um, part of my little mission in life is to remind people uh, that where they're moving isn't necessarily the best place to move. 
uh, in Greenpoint at the New Heart um, Plastics uh, Factory, um, Mayor de Blasio wants to build a school. Um, and that's a bit of a short-sighted issue. But again, this is, this is one of the problems that our elected officials, that we have with our elected officials which is once they're out of office, they're no longer responsible for what they did. Um, it's, um, they, they only care about the four year and eight year. And this is one of the things we've experienced with uh, particularly the people who handle wastewater and you know, that, that sort of business for the city is um, this mayor may want to do something, but he doesn't want to actually be the one who increased spending. So this mayor will do the, 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 the studies and the blue ribbon panels of study studying blue ribbon panel studies. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, the studies that study studies of studies. Um, and basically the job is to push it back to the next mayor. Mm-hmm. Let the next guy who's probably gonna be a Republican pay for it. I don't wanna pay for it. Um, I'm, I'm about fairness and equity or affordable housing or infrastructure or blah, 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 you know, whatever, whatever their particular political plank is. Uh, and again, this is one of the things that I uh, congratulate the Bloomberg administration on, you know, for all their flaws. Um, the, uh, the Bloomberg people really were willing to spend the money. And uh, they were willing, uh, particularly after 9-11, to say, okay, what do we need to do to shore the city up and uh, literally shore the city up and that's a lesson they learned during sandy unfortunately the current mayor didn't really understand didn't learn any lessons from sandy um which is why essentially all shoreline resiliency projects more or less stopped when he came into office unless they're involved with private development right and what 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 are the concerns for the creek with with storms like Sandy? Um, Depending where you were on the creek, there was as much as six feet of standing water directly after the storm. Um, The oil distribution that I mentioned earlier, uh, which are essentially uh, electric pump driven tank farms of uh, petroleum products that are supplied by uh, fuel barges. Um, When they flooded, uh, most of their electrics burned out and it took week, two weeks, I think it was, to start to get them back up and running. Uh, there was, it wasn't too much of an oil release along, along Newtown Creek. Like, uh, they had some real problems out on Kill Van Cole in Staten Island. Um, and Arthur Kill had a pretty large spill. Um, but the, that's why people were waiting online with gas cans for two weeks afterwards at gas stations because the product was in the tanks. They just couldn't get it out of the tanks. Right. Um, we have to start looking at, and I'm, I'm personally, I'm, I'm really quite realistic about the exigencies of business and so on. Um, I believe in a blue collar economy. And I believe that without renewing our building stock periodically, our economy, and particularly the blue collar economy, absolutely collapses. And if you wanna see displacement and gentrification happen at lightning speed, um, 
we should absolutely stop building because most of the people who are building these buildings are blue collar workers. You know, people from the neighborhoods, people who have entered the trades. Um, I call them the Joeys and the Marios. You know, it's, but the thing is, these guys can build anything. If you ask them to build a ladder to the moon, they'll, they'll get to work, you know, just give them a plan and they'll do it. The trick is, why aren't we asking them to build up our shorelines and to build up the soft edges and the riprap edges and to start thinking laterally? Um, I'm not talking about building seawalls the way the Army Corps of Engineers is here. Um, there's so many other things we can do. We can take so many lessons from the Japanese and the Koreans who deal with crazy waves all the time, you know, and like live in very angry waters. Uh, New York is going to be living in angry waters very soon. I mean, sooner than most people conventionally believe we're going to be living in angry waters. Um, this, I mean, this is near future. Is city planning in the state of denial? City planning uh, has actually been doing what they can um, in terms of creating code restrictions saying that the uh, all the mechanical parts of the building, the electrical room, the boiler and whatnot, has to be several flights up. Like you can't put that in the basement anymore. They're also exploring um, the Dutch system where you create a parking garage in the building and then when the rain alert comes through, you're no, you're no longer able to park there and it's turned into what's called a stormwater retention tank. Uh, it's uh, The Dutch also have a great system where they create playgrounds that are recessed uh, from the surface. So during storm events, the playground essentially is converted over to a stormwater retention tank. Um, but again, that's what I mean by lateral thinking. It's uh, Unfortunately, the New York City way would be to build a giant rotary fan on Staten Island that would blow storms away, uh, that we would spend $150 billion studying and never actually build anything. Um, it's, um, and th this is, unfortunately, the po again, the political exigency that in America we only do, we only demand that everybody has a fire, a fire alarm after the building burns down. You know, we, we, don't, we don't think proactively. And um, particularly in the case of uh, rising sea level um, and I would point out uh, temperature going up. Um, one of the things I've been talking to a lot of people about is as these new buildings are going up, why, oh, why isn't there a code requirement for green roofs? Why, oh, why are we not talking about stormwater neutrality in these new buildings? Why, oh, why aren't we talking about a sewer tax? And using the sewer tax as the carrot and the stick to force the developers to build green roofs. The green roofs would actually help them sell the apartments. They would be uh, amenities. You know, it's, all it requires is the political will to say, great, you can build 11 towers in Greenpoint and increase the population by 25%, but you need to build out a resilient shoreline. 
you need to build a green roof and you need to be able to show us that the amount of water that you're putting down the pipe into the system has some sort of relationship to the amount of water that you're keeping in the building and using gray water systems to build the fire stand pipes and so on. It's just building code. But I'm not going to spend a dollar more than I have to on anything. Like I'm going to go to the place where the coffee is a buck a cup, not two bucks a cup. That's human nature. Uh, there's no realtor in his, you know, no, no realty developer in his right mind who's going to spend more on anything than he has to. Um, all we have to do is require it. It's not the 1970s anymore. The gold coast of Long Island is no longer in Huntington. It's in North Brooklyn. It's not, we don't need to treat it as a favor that developers are working in Brooklyn and Queens anymore. It's a privilege for them to be developing buildings there. Oh, Mitch, thank you so much.